Carl's handing out our text for today. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Ambitious. Ambitious, exactly. Uh, There have been uh, some rather infamous uh, sermon series on the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, was the most famous. It took him seven years to get through it. Um, Chapter 1, I think, had... uh, was almost half a year, if not longer. Uh, we're not going to do that. Um, I'm not sure we all have the energy for it. <clears throat> but because these passages are a little shorter than what we have typically tried to tackle, I'd like us to read the passage together first. So we have an anticipation and a common understanding of the wording in this particular text. So I'll read it, starting with verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one sentence in the Greek. And if you look carefully at your English text, you'll notice it's still one sentence. They just break it off with commas. Uh, I happen to format this in such a way that each verse starts a new line, just for the sake that you can take notes more readily. But otherwise, it would have been just one dense paragraph. It's 126 words. Anybody have any idea how many words are in the Ten Commandments? There's more than 10, so. (laughs) 297. Do you know how many words are in the Affordable Health Care Act? (laughs) Too many. Too many, exactly. We'll pass it and then we'll read it, right? (laughs) 234,812. If you were to read the book of Romans, it would take you approximately an hour. Because it's about 7,800, 8,000 words. So you could actually sit down this afternoon, you could even read it out loud, and read the entire book in one hour. This passage we, let, we just read took less than a minute, maybe a minute, maybe a little more. Yet the entirety of the gospel of God is right here. Typically, this, by the way, this is the longest hello in all of Paul's letters. Typically, it's, you know, I, Paul, and someone else maybe, and to the church at so-and-so. Here, he takes a long time to get to the Uh, to the people in Rome in verse 7. 
you can actually take verse 1, eliminate verse 2 through 6, and have a typical preamble. Just see how it reads. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, to all in Rome who are beloved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all there. So here's a question for the class. Why did he include verses 2 through 6? It doesn't fit on the hello my name is badge. It's long. It's involved. What's he doing? Why? Any ideas? Thoughts? He's witnessing. He's yes. witnessing this letter. And why is he witnessing? It's because this audience has never met him. Mm-hmm. He might, you might say, well, that chapter 16, he says, say hello to Priscilla and Aquila. So there's one couple that he knows that were from Rome originally that he got to know in Corinth. But these are strangers. He has never visited there. So he's establishing the doctrine of Jesus Christ to this audience before he gets into the rest of the letter, which is it expounds on these foundational pieces in an extraordinary fashion. Let's look at the first line. And I'm going to break this down a little bit so you can kind of get a feel for it. Um, the first two words in the Greek are Paul, doulos. We all have an idea of who Paul is. You know, we've talked about him, we've studied him. He's the grand apostle of, of God, and he wrote 13 of our letters that we have in here. He's talked about throughout Acts. So that we really don't need for us to discuss who Paul is. But the word doulos. In your English translation, it reads what? Servant. Servant. Anybody else have another translation that has a different word? Bond servant is in the NASB you must have. Do you have the New American Standard? Yeah. So NASB uses bondservant, and that's pretty common. It's not the word. The word is slave. There are seven Greek words that denote servitude. Doulos is the strongest and most direct of all of them. Paul chose the strongest and most unyielding Greek word to describe his position as a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this gets very con- uh, controversial, uh, and I, I want to just take a moment on this because it's, I think it's a critical place to start our discussion. I was listening to one lecturer on, on, on Romans, and this particular man is on the translation committee for the New International Version, the NIV. And he, 
as he's talking to his church, it was, it's just basically a recorder, like my little recorder here, um, set on the counter of a church Sunday school class, and he's lecturing on Romans. Can you imagine having someone of that stature uh, talking about the word doulos? He said, yeah, I just came back from um, a meeting where the translation committee has spent three hours discussing this word. What's the appropriate English comparable? I'm going to show you a book that is an entire book on this topic. <laughs> called Slave by John MacArthur. John MacArthur wrote this book, let's see, when did he publish this thing? Uh, 2010, so just a few years ago. I had actually listened to his lecture on Romans chapter 1 done 40 years ago, and he didn't even bring up this topic. He just went right over it. Didn't even discuss it. Approximately 30 years later, he's writing an entire book on the topic because he, uh, I think he overstates a little bit, um, partly to make a point, but he calls the translation of this word as servant as the great cover-up, the great mistake in Bible translations. I think that may be overstating it. Um, we, in our terminology, when we talk about the word slave, what comes to our minds as Americans? Exactly. We think chains around necks, chains on ankles, um, inside slave ships. We think of, you know, slavery in the South has all these really negative connotations. Another challenge is that in the Latin, in the Latin Vulgate, the word doulos was translated, let me get my pen that works. I won't open it. Um, it's amazing what gets me excited. <laughs> I mean, years ago I was teaching at a writer's conference and uh, I wanted to use the whiteboard, but there weren't any markers. I almost took out my pen. I was really frustrated. Um, in Latin, It is the Latin word service, S-E-R-V-U-S, which is very easy to translate as servant, because it has that same understanding. So there's some who think that this is why it ended up as servant in our text. I'm not saying the word servant is wrong. I'm just saying it misses the depth of the word that's here. I, I don't think it's a big cover-up. I don't think that there was any intent. I think that would be, uh, well, like I said, it's overstating the case. But slavery was very common in the Roman world. There are estimates 
that for every free citizen, there were three, three slaves in the Roman Empire. And it might have even been more in the city of Rome itself. So, how many are in this room? Let's see, two, four, six, eight, <laughs> sixteen. So there's sixteen in this room. That means twelve of you are slaves. These are the free people. <laughs> this table, there's four of them. All the rest of you must do their bidding. Give me a cup of coffee, please. <laughs> Very good. You know how to get it. Uh, I mean, think of that ratio. You think of a church service that would have 100 in attendance. That would mean 25 of them are free and 75 are slaves. They are bond servants, and the word bond servant actually comes because the root word of doulos is the word deo, meaning to bind. So the bond servant concept of a being bound to something else is implicit in that word. And so the, NIV, the New American Standard actually, it's not a bad compromise if you had to create one. Um, but Paul is a Roman citizen. He sits at this table. He's the free guy. But he declares himself a slave. Just pause for a moment and think how radical of a statement that is as part of his hello to a group of people who don't know him. They probably know he's a Roman citizen. That, that word would have gotten back. That he's Jewish, he's a rabbi, he's, you know, he's taught, he was taught by Gamaliel. I mean, this guy really knows his stuff, but my goodness sake, he's also a Roman citizen. But he goes, hi, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. In, let's see, find my, passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. He knows that he is not his own. He knows that he was bought like a slave in the marketplace. He was bought with the blood of Christ. And such he is part of that kingdom, and his master is Jesus Christ. We resist the word slave because it makes us sound tone deaf. If you are, you know, in fact, John MacArthur's organization has a new Bible translation coming out called the Legacy Standard. Um, they're taking the NASB and reworking it because the NASB keeps getting updated and sounding more and more like the NIV. So it's losing its specialness, I suppose, if you want to call it that. So they're saying, let's redo it. But wherever doulos is found in the Greek, he's translating it as slave, regardless. 
because of his position on this. Well, it's going to make the translation to someone who is not schooled in the subtleties of this word. It's going to make it sound tone deaf. Now, it, you don't want to say, well, let's simplify and make, you know, lowest common denominator. Um, but notice how much I'm talking about this to try to explain it. See, servant has the idea of you have a choice. You choose to serve. We who serve the church choose to do so. Uh, Lisa and I were talking a little bit about this last night and I made a comment. I said, well, a butler in England chooses that profession. But they have a master of the house and they answer the call to get coffee. It's a choice. It's their job. It's what they're paid to do. Now, it could be that in certain levels of slavery, some of the slaves were paid. It was their job, but they were bought by the owner to do that job. Do you see how this can get confusing? In Roman society, there were many who were slaves that had a very high position in the administration and in the management of the city. They were um, teachers. There were some who would teach the children. That was their job, but they were owned. So we have this problem of the culture versus our culture, because you Man, you'd call someone a slave, or you tell an employee, I'm your master. That's not going to come off well. I imagine if you told your uh, management at ASU, you know, you're my masters, they're going to go, um, I think NAU is calling. <laughs> you know, they would push you out because that's pejorative, it's not friendly. However, if you start saying that it's always slave or always servant, then chapter six of Romans makes no sense because chapter six is all, all about being a slave to sin. It's the same word, doulos. It doesn't even translate as servant. It's translated as the word sin, but it's the same word. So we have to be careful. I like the idea of translating this as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, a slave of Christ Jesus. It just, it's right, it was intentional, and it's what Paul intended to come across as. One other side note, if you're curious, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, wherever they translated the Hebrew into Greek and used the word doulos, it's translated as the word servant, not slave. So you have Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Job, and David are all called doulos of God, servants of God. I have the scripture references if you're curious. There's also a situation both in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 where an indentured slave, that's someone who is working as a slave to pay off a debt, 
if they fall in love with the family and choose to stay as part of the family, Exodus and Deuteronomy allow that to happen. That slave chooses to be a slave or a servant for the rest of their life and they were marked as such. It's rather gruesome, but you would go to the doorpost in the uh, front of the house, you put your ear, and they stuck an iron rod through it. It says so right in the text. Bam! That little hole, whatever, probably they hung something on it, to indicate you're branded, you're mine. By choice. read you a quote from Andrew McLaren quoted in John MacArthur's book it's from his uh, commentary on Acts actually where he was talking in Acts 20 verse uh, Acts chapter 4 McLaren wrote, writes the true position then for a man is to be God's slave absolute submission unconditional obedience on the slave's part and on the part of the master, complete ownership and the right of life and death, the right of disposing of all goods and chattels, the right of issuing commandments without reason, without a reason, the right to expect that those commandments be swiftly, unhesitatingly, punctiliously, and completely performed. These things inhere in our relations to God. Blessed is the man who has learned that they do and has accepted them as, a high, as his highest glory and the security of his most blessed life. Such submission, absolute and unconditional, the blending and the absorption of my will in his will is the secret that makes all glorious, great, and happy. That's page one of my notes. <laughs> Paul Dulos, who is called. He's called an apostle. In your English translation, the word to be is not there in the Greek. It is literally called apostle. The word apostle, sent out one. We know he's talking about the title and the position of being an apostle, but he's called, he's invited, he's welcomed. You could even say he was summoned. First Corinthians 9.1, Paul writes, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? We've talked about this before in the position of his relationship and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, there were various criteria that uh, we could find in, in the biblical text for this. But he's called. Notice, if you, since you have one, all on one page, you will see the word called is also in verse 6 and in verse 7. I actually have a little triangle in my page. I've circled all three and put lines between them. 
the idea of being called is very clear in this passage. And it isn't just Paul that's being called, which we'll see in a moment. He's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart. is the Greek word aphorizo. Get my pen out here. A-P-H-O-R-I-Z-O. Aphorizo. And that literally means to be set apart. To be picked out of the crowd. It's found 63 times in the Greek Old Testament. And each time it's used to describe his chosen people as being set apart. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have aphorizo, have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So think about it for a second. A slave is purchased. Paul is purchased, called, and set apart. In the first verse, what a unique position to be. All for the purpose of the gospel of God. All right? What is the word? gospel mean? Hmm? Exactly. It's the Greek word euangelion, or we would think of evangel. And you have evangelism and evangelical come out of this evangel. Euangelion, to have good news. A little interesting tidbit that I must not have picked up on before. But apparently, Paul's use of the word euangelion was fairly unique. He pretty much co-opted it into the Christian idea of the good news of Jesus Christ. Euangelion was used by the Romans to announce Caesar's birthday. There are actual inscriptions and documents they have found of the Uangaleon of birthday, invitations. Come to the good news. We have a celebration. And then Paul comes along and says, yeah, it's good news, but it's not about Caesar. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ. We I mean, we have the Gospel Coalition, we have all these words to the point that we don't even think about the word anymore. It becomes so commonplace, it's like the word the in Christian circles. It becomes our, um, I don't know, one of our buzzwords. You know, I wonder sometimes if the devil has something to do with our buzzwords get us to make it so common that we stop thinking about what it means. Paul in this passage says, I am bought, I am called, I am set apart for the good news. 
in a world of ours right now, the headlines are doom and gloom. Okay, now that COVID is a little bit farther behind us than it was just a month ago, it's still there, but it's not as dominating the headline of we're all gonna die in the next week. Instead, it's we're all going to lose our money because inflation is so out of control. And by the way, you can't find baby formula. And oh, it's not like can't, you can't find toilet paper or gas. Oh, gas prices. I mean, where's the Uan Galeon? It's an old adage in the newspaper world if it bleeds, it leads. You have to be really careful what you let cross your eyeballs or cross your eardrums because the world is out to tell you how bad it all is and how you need to give up and you have no control. Those of us who are believers in the good news know that we have no control. And we're okay with that because God's in charge, or as Pastor Jim said, he's the one holding the sword. And he's going to take care of us. Yeah, we might suffer. Yeah, it might be difficult. But when has it not been difficult? You know, as someone who works in the publishing business, I'm always talking to writers, and they're always saying, why is it so hard to get published? Why is it so much... Why does it take so long? Why is it so difficult? I said, that's why it's called work. <laughs> this isn't playtime. We are in the business of changing the world with our words. It's not something you just do out of, you know, oh, this is something fun. Yeah, it can be fun, but still. It's work. It's hard. The good news is such that it's such a contrast to the bad news. Therefore, we who are called to present the good news of God should be talking about the good news and not talking about the bad. Now we can use the inflation issues and all the other things as a, a connection to someone and say, but you know, I have faith. You know, God that's bigger than all of this. This gospel of God, verse 2, is not new. It's not something that just suddenly showed up. Oh, gee, look at the new discovery. No, it was promised beforehand through his promises, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's been around. It was promised and it was recorded. You can go look it up. First Peter 1, 19 and 20 says, The precious blood of Christ is like that lamb without blemish or spot foreknown before the foundation of the world. This has been put in place before the world was created. And we're discovering it 
today. To us it might be new, but it's not new. It's actually the old, old story. Last week I handed out um, this, I'm going to make the hand out again. Um, I handed out a chart of the use of the Old Testament in Romans. And as I mentioned last week, I found some typos, and then Tom pointed out that I missed one in chapter 14, so I put it back in. Um, um, because I had made the comment that every chapter in Romans except Romans chapter 6 is a quote from the Old Testament. And I didn't have chapter 14, and it's, it's there, so I corrected the chart for you. But where it really catches me, wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago when we were, is what I wrote at the bottom of the page. If we include the paraphrased quotes and the clear allusions and the direct quotes, Paul uses Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Malachi in the book of Romans. Romans is a theology of the Old Testament. He's taking the old, old story. He's taking the prophets of the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, as an expression and a foundation upon which the gospel of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is presented. Do you realize, and I didn't realize this, the phrase here, Holy Scripture, is graphis Haggai, so holy writing. It's the only place in the entire New Testament where that phrase is used. It talks about scriptures, but the only time you see holy scriptures is right here in the introduction to Romans. Holy means to be what? Set apart. Look up one line on your text. He's called to be an apostle. Set apart. Now set apart there is aphorizo, means picked out of the crowd. Holy here is a different type of being set apart, but it's the same concept. One is being pulled out of a group of people. The other is being declared perfect and holy and set apart. One guy wrote, people do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them. That is what the Holy Scriptures are. So now we go to verses 3 and 3 to 5 actually. And these Promises beforehand through his prophets in the scripture concerning what or whom? Jesus Christ. So now we have four things where Paul affirms Jesus. 
He affirms his name, his humanity, his deity, and his purpose in the next two and a half verses. So let's start with his name. God's name is Jesus Christ. We see that at the, um, in the first four. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the Son. That is unique relationship with the Father. He is Jesus, the man, human in all ways. He is Christ, the Messiah, or the Messianic title. And He is Lord, the Exalted One. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son. Paul establishes right here who Jesus is before he gets into any other conversation. He establishes who he is and his calling, the foundation of the scripture, and then what the entire book of Romans is about. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This seemingly innocuous statement here is so rich. So you look at his name, then you look at his humanity. His humanity, it says, he was descended from David according to the flesh. The word descended is the Greek word spermatos. I don't need to explain what that would reflect. It's the idea that Jesus was human in all ways. Just like you and I. He also was from the royal line of David. And that is established in Matthew 1.1. You start seeing the lineage, line and lineage of David is laid out. So he's human, born of the Virgin Mary. We just declared that in the Apostles' Creed in the first hour. But then his deity is declared. Verse 4. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, the phrase spirit of holiness. Oh, sorry. I just jumped ahead in my notes. Didn't mean to do that. I'll come back to that in a second. So the spirit is a contrast to the flesh. That's what I meant to say. So you have David according to the flesh, the de deity according to the spirit. So you have descended, born, and declared deity. You see the two? Right next to each other. In the incarnation, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's also part of the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. And he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. Birth, resurrection, his deity. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
quote Charles Spurgeon now. Every true Christian pronounces the phrase Jesus our Lord with the emphasis of unreservedness. We desire that Christ Jesus should be our Lord in everything and Lord over every part of our being. He who truly loves Jesus and who knows that he is one of those who are redeemed by him says with all his heart that Jesus is Lord, his absolute sovereign. If that word be used in the sense of Christ having unlimited monarchy and sway over the soul, yea, O Lord Jesus, thou shalt be the autocratic imperial master of our heart and the whole dominion of our humanity. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So verse 5. I actually played with this a little bit from a journalistic standpoint. And I found, because you know you're supposed to ask who, what, when, why, where, and how, right? There is a who, a why, and a where right here. Who? Verse 5. Through whom? Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through whom? Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to be sent out. <clears throat> Why? What does it say? For the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Well, obedience of faith apparently is a controversial translation. Not quite sure why, but I have to read this to you. Uh, this is from Ken Weist's word studies. As to the meaning of the word obedience to the faith, scholars differ. Big surprise. Some say it means obedience to the faith, the Christian system of belief, as in Acts 6, verse 7, where a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Others say that obedience is the obedience which springs from and is produced by faith. And I think that's more accurate. A.T. Robertson actually comes along and says, the original Greek text, and this is where, if you know what this means, I'm happy for you, because I probably couldn't explain it even though I'm an editor. The original Greek text refers to the subjective genitive in Romans 16:26, where the obedience springs from faith. Oh, well, you know what subjective genitive is? Please don't see me afterwards. I know it is very simple for you, and she'll be telling me it all the way home. Uh, anyway, it's the idea of where is the faith coming from? Where is the obedience coming from? Is it from outside coming in or from inside going out? Is ultimately what it's trying to express. 
So we have the who, Jesus, the why, for the obedience of faith, for his name, and the where, among all the nations. Now, stop right there. He's writing to Rome. To a church that has had its share of controversy in leadership. If you recall, when we talked about this two weeks ago, there was a time, within 10 years of this letter being written, when Emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, which meant if they were a Christian Jew, they were kicked out, like Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila had to leave Rome. They moved to Corinth where they met Paul and that journey began. Now they have moved back. So what happened in the Roman church when all the Jews were kicked out? Who ran the joint? The Gentiles did. And then the Jews showed back up. Oh no, now who's in charge? The ones who started the church or the ones who kept it going? And so there's been this tension and there always has been the tension between the Jew and the Gentile anyway of how do you integrate the Jewish faith? I mean, the whole book of Galatians is about that, of you know the Judaizers coming in saying, you need a little bit of extra. You can believe in Jesus, but you gotta bring in the law too. And you have all this back and forth. And here, Paul says, I haven't met any of you guys yet, but the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, everything I'm talking about, is for all the nations. I'm not just talking to the Jews who are in the church. I'm not just talking to the Gentiles in the church. This is for everybody. Everyone, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. There's not a whole other options between that. I think it's quite extraordinary when you think about it. It's among all the nations. And you're called to preach the good news of the obedience of faith to all the nations. Note a little thing here. Romans opens with the idea of obedience in verse 5. It closes in chapter 16, 19, verse 19, with the idea of obedience. For your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. Chapter 16, verse 19. This idea of obedience to the gospel of God, to the faith that's been presented to you through the power of the spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead. Someone, it was J.I. Packer who wrote, you might be saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You might be saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. This isn't just, just for you, it is for everyone. In all ways, in all places. 
Now I mentioned that obedience was in verse 5 and also in verse 9, chapter 16, verse 19. So is the phrase, all the nations. Romans opens with all the nations in uh, verse 5 and closes in chapter 16, verse 29. Now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Full circle is right there in the text. Then he gets personal, verse 6, including you who are called. You might think, oh, it's really great for Paul to be called. But he doesn't need me. I'm no Paul. No, you're not. You're who you are in Christ and are empowered by Christ and called to Christ's service. He needs you. He needs me. And then it just, it's just this beautiful picture. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That means you are his property. You have being called to belong. This goes and circles all the way back to his idea of being a slave for Christ. Called to be a part, to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7 To those in Rome who are loved. By God and what? Called. There's the word called again. So you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are beloved by God and called to be saints. So you are called, you belong, you are loved, and you are called. And by the way, the to be between the word called and saints is not in the Greek. It's implied, it could be there, but technically it reads, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. And what is a saint? It is someone who is set apart. Didn't we have set apart in verse 1? Didn't we have holiness in verse 4? And don't we have set apart again? All of us are saints. I know Carl, growing up in the Catholic Church, the saints were venerated and talked about, and there was a saint for everything. Um, when I worked in the Christian bookstore in the 80s, uh, there was a particular saint that you would bury in your front yard if you wanted your house to sell. Joseph. I don't remember which one it was. Joseph. Okay, you all know, I can't remember. And we would have people every month coming into the store looking for one of those. 
what? <laughs> you want, okay, that's, that's biblical. Um, sounds more like superstitious to me, but you don't tell that's the customer. You just smile and go, no, we fresh out. Uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't have those, sorry. Um, but this idea, and uh, you know, there's a, a way of honoring those who are the great ones of the faith. I mean, Protestants do that too. We just don't give them special names. We just name schools after them and all sorts of other things of that nature. But at the same time, the scripture's really clear that each one of us in this room is called saints. Those of us who are called, beloved by Jesus, are called to be set apart, to be holy, and be part of the family of Christ. Because we belong to Him. He is our master. He is our protector. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He provides for us in all things and in all ways. And then Paul renders that last very common phrase, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, not the Father, our Father. Bringing in the community of believers together in this conversation. He earlier had mentioned our, um, where is it? Oh, I lost it. It's in the passage somewhere. In verse four. Jesus verse four, Christ, thank you. Yes, thank you. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he comes down at the very end and grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned a second time in this passage, re-emphasizing the entirety of what he's been saying. So there's the little hello my name is badge that you handed out when you're at a convention or something. And you just put one word on there, usually your name. This page is what he wrote on that badge. Hello, my name is Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus Christ for the good news of the gospel of God who is fully human, fully divine, provided for our salvation and declared such in the scriptures long, long time ago. And he's calling you individually because you're beloved by God, you belong to him, and you're called to be saints. Hi. Let's talk. Which is what he does for another 7,600 words <laughs> that you can read in one hour. 
Isn't that extraordinary? The first time I ever taught this, I taught all the way from verse 1 to verse 18 in one session. Obviously, you gloss over these first seven verses till you get to the good stuff. But I think when we gloss over anything in Scripture, we miss the good stuff. Because Paul was very intentional here to set up everything that comes after and setting the foundation of the theology of who Jesus Christ is for our glory, for his glory and for our benefit. We have visitors and I think they want you to come up here and talk to the group and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you all.